This Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk is with Kyle Kondik, the managing editor of Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball and director of communications at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. Kyle is the author of a new book, The Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President, the state that happens, I might add, to be his home state. Welcome, Kyle. Thanks so much for being with us. I know you've had a busy week. Thanks for having me. So what are the factors that make Ohio the bellwether state so reflective of the nation at large? So there are a number of different factors that go into it, and I would sum them up by saying that I think that Ohio is special because it's not special in that it has always been a great microcosm for the country. It does not have a dominant political ideology. It also does not have a dominant region or big city that kind of influences its politics. You have Cleveland, where I'm from, Columbus, Cincinnati is three major cities, but they don't dominate the state the way that Chicago does in Illinois or New York City does in New York State, even to the extent that a Detroit or a Minneapolis-St. Paul dominates their states. You know, the state has been a great microcosm for the nation ever since its founding. When the state was settled, the settlement patterns were from all the original 13 states to the point where Ohio was classified, rightly, I think, as the first American state. In the Northeast, you had a lot of people from New England. In fact, Cleveland and its, and its surrounding areas were the old Connecticut Western Reserve. So it was kind of this this Yankee enclave in Northeast Ohio. You had the Virginia Military District in Southwest Ohio that was settled by a lot of Virginians. And so there was a Southern character in that part of the state. The middle part of the state was settled by people from Mid-Atlantic, Pennsylvania, and other places. You had this kind of interesting mix to start off the state and none of those groups ever really dominated the state and it sort of kept the state pretty closely tied to uh, national political attitudes. So can you say that there is a typical voter? I know that in your book you talked about the Dayton Journal Herald and how they had identified this woman, Betty Lowry. I mean, does that still hold water, that that, that concept? I don't think so, although it's interesting. It was this book that came out in 1970 called The Real Majority, and the two authors created this archetype for the typical American voter, and it was basically a 46-year-old woman who was married to a blue-collar worker from Dayton, Ohio. And so the newspaper in Dayton actually tried to find someone and successfully found someone, a woman named Betty Lowry, who exemplified that archetype. I will say that, you know, Ohio has a significant African-American population, basically around the the national average in a 12, 13 percent. But otherwise, it's a very largely white state. It does not have a a large number of Hispanics or Asian-Americans or other non-white groups. And so, you know, the typical Ohio voter, I, I do think, is white. I also think that whites in Ohio are a little bit more open to voting for Democrats than whites are more broadly nationally. Barack Obama did slightly better with white voters in Ohio than he did nationally. And that helps explain why Ohio and the Midwest more broadly, which is whiter than the nation, is still quite winnable for Democrats in a competitive election because whites in the North and in the Midwest vote a little bit differently, a little more Democratic than whites in the South who are more Republican. Let me ask you this. As good as your crystal ball is, and I've been a follower for a number of years and want to encourage everyone to subscribe to the crystal ball, the fact that Governor Kasich, who, of course, was very excited to have the convention in his home state, but no one knew that he and Trump would have the issues that they had. And I mean, it was really quite something for the governor not even to give welcome remarks. How will that play out as Ohioans decide who to vote for? Will will they be less likely to vote for Trump because of the fact that he and the governor have had such a, a poor relationship? 
It is quite incredible that here we have the first convention in Ohio since the Republicans met in Cleveland back in 1936. It was a really big moment for Cleveland. And while Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more broadly are Democratic-leaning areas, John Kasich has spent a lot of time and energy cultivating Northeast Ohio, and I think has done so fairly successful way, as we saw in his very, very comfortable 2014 re-election bid against a candidate who was from Northeast Ohio, but who ended up being fairly weak. And also, you know, it seems like the national reviews of the presentation in Cleveland and the logistics of it have really been very positive, which is a positive mark for a city, Cleveland, that could use every positive mark it can get. Again, it was just amazing that Kasich did not want to participate in that, even in kind of like a nonpartisan host kind of role. I mean, even Mayor Frank Jackson, who's a Democrat and who actually is pretty friendly with Kasich, he gave a speech at the convention and Kasich obviously did not, which just shows the, the level of antipathy there is between Trump and Kasich. And in the primary here in Ohio, Trump did really, really well along the Ohio River, kind of Appalachian, Ohio. He did not do so well in the rest of the state. Now, obviously, he was running against the popular governor of Ohio. Ohio was the only state that Kasich won. But some of Trump's worst counties were some of the typically historically very Republican suburbs that surround places like Cleveland and Columbus and Cincinnati. And if Trump cannot get you know, maximal turnout in those places and really do as well or better than Mitt Romney did in those places in 2012, that's a big problem for him. And I don't know if he can make up those votes, even if he does better in, say, places like Youngstown, where he did really well in the primary, where his message may resonate in places that are typically pretty Democratic. To me, there's the possibility that Trump really does outperform what a normal Republican would do in Appalachian, Ohio, but he underperforms in Republican suburban Ohio and basically is just spinning his wheels and of course, even doing as well as Romney did in Ohio would not be enough because Romney lost the state by three points. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you about another opponent, and that is Ted Cruz. What was he trying to accomplish by his gamble? And you think that bet will pay off for him in 2020, which I'm assuming that, that that's the game he was playing. I do not think that Cruz was well received by the bulk of Republicans. I think the party is unified, at least the, the grassroots is kind of unified. And there are a number of Republicans who maybe didn't like Mitt Romney or John McCain, but they were told by their leaders that they had to unify around those people. And now that some of those Republicans have a candidate that maybe they like more in Trump, they see it as now it's the time for the people who told them to unify for Romney and McCain. It's time for those people to unify behind their candidate. You know, I think a lot of people saw the Cruz speech as a kind of a bad look for Trump, that there was not this party unity at the convention. I really interpret it as a bad look for Cruz because... And then also the the breakfast yesterday morning that he had with yeah. the Texas state delegation. I completely understand why he wouldn't want to endorse Trump for a lot of different reasons, policy-wise, but also because Trump really did say some very nasty things about Cruz and Cruz's family. So I get that, but it might have been better for Cruz just not to speak and to handle it sort of the way Kasich has, which was sort of to keep a low profile, make it clear that he wasn't ready to endorse and just move on. I think, I think Cruz led with his chin a little bit. Think about it this way. If Trump does, in fact, lose the election, and I, I think he He's the underdog, although I don't think it's, you know, 100 percent certain he's going to lose or anything like that. Uh, if Trump does lose, I think he will blame a lot of people for it. And given the strength of support he has amongst at least a considerable minority of Republican voters, I think a lot of those folks are going to blame Cruz and blame Kasich for, for Trump losing potentially. 
and they may remember that in in 2020. So I could see it from Cruz's perspective that he may think, oh, well, Trump's going to lose and then I'm going to look smart because I was the guy who warned everybody about him. Cruz also spent a lot of the primary kind of sucking up to Trump. So it's kind of tricky, but I ultimately think Cruz would have been better off not speaking, but we're not going to find out how this all shakes out for a very long time. Well, we got just another minute or two, so I want to ask you about a piece that I read this morning by David Brooks that appeared in the New York Times. He said, or he wrote, the GOP is not dividing, it's ceasing to exist as a coherent institution. I'd also like you to comment on the fact that, uh, you know, Washington Post reported that there are only 18 African-American delegates in the hall. So what does that say for the future of the Republican Party? This really struck me in 2012 as well, and it was certainly true for the Republicans this week, and we'll see about the Democrats next week, but it is a just a very white crowd, no question. And it, it's also more of a male crowd than a female crowd. And I don't know what the, the gender breakdown of the delegates is or the people in the audience, but definitely more men. I mean, it just that sort of felt that way. I don't necessarily agree that even if Trump gets trounced that the GOP will cease to exist, although it was so interesting that Trump was up on stage being very critical of Iraq, being very critical of free trade. The difference between the George W. Bush Republican Party and really the Republican Party before Bush and now the Trump Party, there's just there's some very stark differences, particularly on their sort of vision of America's role abroad. And so I do think that the Trump is sort of at least temporarily changing some of the principles of the Republican Party. But I think that if Trump loses, there's going to be this rush to say, oh, well, the GOP is not going to exist anymore. But if you look at, you know, what the midterm elections in 2018 could look like, the fact that the president's party almost always does poorly in midterm elections and that the U.S. Senate map in 2018 will be one where Democrats are very, very overextended. You could see the Republicans snap back into prominence, at least in the House and the Senate, very quickly after 2016. And then they could try to hash these arguments out again in 2020. I'm not ready to jump on the death of the GOP bandwagon, but certainly there's a lot of ideological inconsistency between Trump and what has come before in the Republican Party that the party's going to have to sort out. So, you know, when you're the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball, you got to be put on the spot. So as of today, what's your prediction by percentage of the popular vote as well as by electoral votes? Yikes. So our electoral map, our ratings of the electoral map, did our first Clinton versus Trump map end of March 2016. And we had Clinton 347 and Trump 191, which was essentially the Mitt Romney versus Obama map. We just switched one state. It was North Carolina went from going from Romney to going for Clinton this time. And that's the map we still have. 347 Clinton, 191 Trump. I think my expectation at this particular point in time would be that if Clinton were to win, she would win by a margin somewhere between Obama 2012 and Obama 2008. So Obama 2012 got 51, Obama 2008 got 53. So I guess I'd peg Clinton at somewhere around 52, 53% in the two-party vote. Now, there'll probably be a larger third-party vote this time. You'd expect the Libertarians probably to have their best election ever, but that only means getting more than 1% of the vote. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe Green Party's Jill Stein also gets a a point or two or something like that. So I'd say say Clinton in the low 50s in the two-party vote and an electoral college victory that looks somewhat like Obama 08 or 12. Tell people how you can subscribe to Sabato's Crystal Ball. 
We're at centerforpolitics.org backslash crystal ball, one word. And there's a sign-up tab there. You can sign up for our newsletter. We come out uh, regularly every Thursday, and we've been doing some special issues from the conventions and also just as, as events warrant. Well, Cal, I want to thank you for being with us. And also, hey, congratulations on your book, The Bellwether, Why Ohio Picks the President. I want to encourage all of our listeners to take a look at it. You can order it on Amazon. Cal, I hope we can talk again as we go through the campaign season. Sure. Thanks for having me. To learn about a World Affairs Council in your community, as well as the November National Annual Conference, go to worldaffairscouncils.org. This Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk is a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and distributed by the World Affairs Councils of America. Thanks for listening.